Welcome to the March 19th, 2021 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right to it. The Office of the State Auditor expressed serious concerns this week with the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment. The auditor issued a disclaimer of opinion rating for the Department of Labor, saying it was nearly impossible to tell the total amount of unemployment that was overpaid due to the department's disorganized accounting. Pat Calhoun for Westward, uh, I will admit, maybe not all of my accounting is in order, but I think an auditor could at least tell me what has gone wrong. The fact that one of the biggest departments in the state, that the state auditor had to throw up their hands saying, we don't even know how bad it is, seems like a bad thing. What were your first impressions? It is definitely not a good thing. First of all, this is a department that's had issues with its computer system, with the database for a decade, and they keep trying to come up with fixes. They don't work. So they were going into the pandemic like those of us down to our last roll of toilet paper last March before the panic hit. They were in no way positioned to be able to deal with the incredible flood of unemployment claims that came in. Their database was just not there. Their equipment wasn't there. And you also have very smart people already figuring out how to game the system from around the world that they have to deal with. So not just the legitimate claims that no one could have predicted how many would be coming in, but the illegitimate claims. So this audit ended last June. It looks like maybe starting in this year with the IDME program and other things, the state's going to get a grip on it, but it is going to take a very long time to clean this up. And of course, we're not the only state that has the problem, but this is our state and it's a mess. Penfield Tate joins us, attorney with Tate Law and a former state lawmaker. And Penn, with uh, that former state lawmaker experience, when you see this, as we talked about before the program, you talked about how this is a uh, big part of the governor's oversight here. What needs to happen? He's got a lot of things in his plate, but this seems like a big deal. You know, it is a big deal. And when you're a legislator, what you're frequently concerned about is the state budget, where you appropriate money to be spent and then how it gets spent. The last thing you want to see as a legislator is money you got appro- you appropriated is being misspent in, in wildly um, um, untrackable way. And, and to Patty's point, you know, when, when the pandemic hit and all of these people were unemployed and then you got all this federal money coming in in the way of uh, unemployment assistance, it just generated more and more grifters and thieves and, and sharks to come in and file all these um, spurious claims. And so for a department that was already overwhelmed to then have that, you know, by a magnitude of 10 because of the circumstances, it was just more than, than they could handle. Um, what the governor probably is going to have to do is commission a special panel and put some additional bodies together to send to the Department of Labor and Employment and help deal with this issue. Um, there are too many fraudulent claims and it's going to cost the state millions. Natasha Gardner, freelance journalist and uh, author of the Denver Newsletter, joins us remotely. Natasha, it's great to have you. Now, when I look at the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment, I realize they had a record number of applicants. This was a deluge, so I can understand that part. But to be to the point where the auditor doesn't even know how bad it is, I don't know. I mean, they had one job, so we should at least know how bad it is. What do you think? Well, I think the key there is is that when we look back at, at January or February of last year, we were looking at very low unemployment in Denver, but across the state as well. And in fact, I went back and looked historically to, to around 2000 to see how that curve, that graph looks like for unemployment. And it was just so low. And then there's this incredible spike that happens right as the COVID impact truly hits our economy. What's interesting, though, is that I wanted to give that context. So I look back at sort of after the Great 
Recession, what was happening there. Much slower buildup, time to really think about it, and it sustained itself for a long time. And I think that's something that's important because this system was broken before unemployment rose when the, the pandemic hit, but unemployment is still quite high, and it's not going to get better overnight. Um, as much as we'd like the economy to just sort of be perfect tomorrow, I think that oh, the realists out there understand that it's going to take a little bit of time to build up. So whatever problems existed in February that were exacerbated in March and April and May and June are still there, um, although they're getting improved upon now, but they're going to continue as we have more and more Coloradans who still need access to this system that um, is getting improved, but still has a long way to go. It's going to be a very interesting few months as this all gets sorted out. Um, but I also have to just take a second and say these poor workers who are trying to get this, both get their unemployment, but also sort through what was going wrong in that system. It seems like a perfect storm of, situ uh, of things going wrong. And John Frank from Axios Denver joins us. Great to have you back on the show, John. You know, the, the, the clunky metaphor is my spirit animal, so I'll offer this. If, there's the, if the state auditor is the fire marshal and he, can't even, he or she cannot even tell how many fire trucks to send to this fire because he doesn't even know how big of a deal it is, what does the governor need to do about this? She, yes. Uh, Auditor Diane Ray and, and her office put this together, and it's hard to underestimate how big of an asterisk this is on the state's end-of-the-year financial books. It's also a reminder that this has been a problem for a year now, because uh, the audit goes back to June. For the governor, there, it's a multifaceted problem. First, he's the tech governor. He's the tech you know, entrepreneur, and he put in place a new computer system to make this work better. And the old system and the new system are having problems. In addition, Governor Polis waived some of the normal checks and balances the system would go through to prevent fraudulent claims as part of the executive order because he wanted to get the checks out to people faster. So that makes sense, but it does have ramifications on the back end. Now, we asked the governor about this just the other week about this audit, and he pretty much pushed past it, said he's working with the attorney general's office to identify any fraudulent claims. But we just haven't heard, you know, the mea culpa that some may wish for here, given the lasting issues and problems for everyday Coloradans trying to get their checks that they deserve, as well as the millions upon millions that this is going to cost the state in fraud, not to mention the business owners are the ones who are going to have to foot the bill for all these unemployment claims going forward for the next decade or so. A Boulder County District judge ruled against the city of Boulder's ability to create its own assault weapons ban this week. Judge Andrew Hartman ruled that only state and federal governments can pass laws prohibiting assault weapons. Penn, you are our esteemed uh, attorney at the table this week. What do we need to know about this legal opinion? You know, you need to know that this is the beginning, not the end. This battle has been going on for years in Colorado, in the legislature, and in county commission offices, and in city council meetings for years, where there's been this tension between primarily in urban areas, they want more restrictive gun legislation, and the state has been resistant to that. And sort of it rolls back to 2003, when and, and so viewers know that was at a time when Republicans controlled the House, the Senate, and the governor's office. And they passed legislation that essentially said no city or county can have gun laws more restrictive than state law. And they passed a law that says high-capacity magazines are 15 or more, and they did some language with assault weapons. And what happened is... 
Boulder a couple years ago passed legislation more restrictive than the state law and the theory that as a home rule city, it could do that. They were also relying on a prior case because Denver has a more restrictive law, but it dates back to 1989. And when the Supreme Court upheld the Denver law, it did it in a very odd way. Number one, one of the justices had to recuse, and then it was a tie vote, which let the lower court ruling stand, basically saying since Denver's law preceded state law, it was allowed to be in place. We don't have that here. Boulder's law came after the state law, but what I suspect will happen is because Boulder's a home rule city, this is going to be appealed up to the Colorado Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is going to have to determine whether this sort of legislation about guns and gun rights and capacity is a matter of state import where the legislature can act to supersede and override any local legislation. Natasha, do you see the city of Boulder appealing this and, like Penn talked about, extending this for uh, quite a while? I think it's very possible. I, I think that one of the interesting things with gun laws, and, and let's let's be frank, right, this could be a conversation at this table every single week. We have laws upon laws upon laws, and they're constantly being debated. Plus, this is just this this flashpoint topic in American culture. We will continue to talk about gun laws <laughs> for a very long time. In this case, I think it, it gets down to the heart of the question of what does a law say versus what does a local community um, feel? And I think when we comes to gun violence, it's always important to note that gun violence is something that we do feel on a state level and on a federal level, but the local communities experience that in a way that cannot be underestimated and should not be ignored um, as people talk about it. I think that's why the community of Boulder perhaps looked at um, this sort of more strict rule. I think it's the reason that other municipalities might do similar things. It's um, possibly behind why Denver has its rules as well. So there's there's a difference between what happens in the courts and then what happens in sort of the court of public opinion. And there will com- continue to be a discord um, between those two groups um, and when it comes to gun laws in this country. John, uh, one of the points that Natasha made, we'll just piggyback on that one. How do you do you think this will motivate any other cities to be involved or maybe dampen other efforts? Will other cities see this as a cue for action? Well, per what Penfield said could be a double-edged sword. I mean, the issue of state import is the one that the legal question that will have to get taken up here. But the question is whether this could go the other direction. I mean, it sure seems like Boulder setting this up for appeal and wants to challenge this. We don't quite know yet how that will go. But on the other hand, it could go the other directions in, in conservative cities. So on a political level, Democrats feel like they have the upper hand on gun issues now, that, that they've rounded the curve on this and they can run on it and win on it. But, you know, this lawsuit, this issue sure makes it seem like the debate's not over and that it could go backfire on uh, Democrats if, you know, the court rules a certain direction. Patty, uh, gun laws, like Natasha mentioned, uh, they are making they make headlines in Colorado for for years. So that we, if Natasha's right. We could talk about them every week here. Uh, what do you think is unique about this situation from Boulder? that it made John Caldera happy, which is why Boulder cannot let it stand. So, of course, they're going to appeal this, both because Boulder, most residents feel very strongly about guns, and the home rule city issue is important, too. So Boulder will appeal it, and they might wind up with some unusual support because of the home rule issue. In the legislature, we've already seen a couple of the Rocky Mountain gun owners 
promoted bills go down. So the only ones left are really the ones that would be more restrictive about guns. But we will see this go through and be fought for a long, long time. The state legislature is in the process of allocating $1 million toward the installation of a six-foot-tall wrought iron fence around the Capitol as part of, a secu- part of security upgrades for the building. Supporters say this is a justified response to, da- to the damage incurred during protests last summer. Meanwhile, a bipartisan group of former lawmakers and governors have started a campaign against the idea. Natasha, it is difficult these days to bring together Democrats and Republicans, but this issue did it. The bipartisan group uh, include a lot of former lawmakers and governors that do not want to see this happen. Do you think that effort will be effective? Uh, defense or not defense, that is is the big question. I, I lived in Capitol Hill for a long time, but uh, took the bus up to Boulder, so spent almost every day trekking across those Capitol grounds. And so I can't say that I'm unbiased. Um, I'm, I'm completely biased by loving them the way that they are. Um, but while we talk about this fence, and it should be carefully considered, and, and there are lots of good arguments on both sides, it's important to, to also note that this is not just about a fence. This is about general security upgrades to the, the Capitol area as well, including uh, upgrades to bulletproof windows, um, some fortified doors, some additional cameras. So it'll be interesting. Sometimes we we pick up on one element of a bigger issue, and that seems to be the case here. We're focusing on the fence. Um, So I think as as people look at this, they might decide that they like the fence or they don't like the fence, but some of those other things um, sound like they might be very necessary upgrades for the safety of that building. John, it seems like every season we'll find some sort of issue that really brings together some odd bedfellows. And this seems to be the one where it's not this isn't Democrat versus Republican. This is just a full melee, including uh, folks on both sides. How do you think it's going to flesh out? Well, I began writing about this issue back in October when I worked at the Colorado Sun. And back then, the Polis administration and Democratic lawmakers wouldn't share any details about this. I managed to glean just a little bit here and there from sources and from listening the tail ends of hour-long meetings that were conducted behind closed doors. But there are $8 million worth of fortifications going into the Capitol. And the fence has certainly become that symbol. You know, the backlash is strong. It was discussed on the Senate floor just this week uh, with Democrats trying to backpedal, saying no fence is coming anytime soon. But Republicans making very clear that that this is an issue. And to your point, the political risk is that the fence becomes a symbol. And uh, we had Senator Bob Gardner saying just on the Senate floor that lawmakers will pay a price, you know, not only to separate themselves from constituents, but potentially politically here. So this is going to become an issue, even if Democrats try to downplay it. The true plans have finally come out, and now the Polis administration's on the hot seat once again. Patty, are lawmakers being short-sighted about this being the only way to protect the Capitol building? Yes, but I think what you need to do is divide up what actually is protecting the building and what's protecting the grounds. And the grounds have always been an area not just for Natasha to cut across, but for a lot of free speech events, for just all the times you've seen field trips hanging out there. It's really been kind of the people's place. And you can protect the building in a better way without having to cut off access to the ground. So I would hope we see some kind of compromise coming. We're already going to have fights over the memorials there. Maybe we should actually think a little more about some of the memorials that go up that are already there that um, maybe don't have a place there. But we need to protect the building and the people in it 
but I think we also need to protect free speech, and that location is a gathering place. Penn, you have spent probably more time in that building, around that building, than any of us at this table. What are your thoughts? You know, it's interesting. Uh, my, my priest used to tell me form follows function. Um, when I first got elected to the legislature, we didn't even have metal detectors in the building. It was considered the people's house so people could come and go freely. Then things happened. Columbine happened. September 11th happened. A legislator who had a concealed carry permit misplaced their pistol and the Capitol was locked down. Then we had metal detectors installed. Then there was a big political brouhaha and we pulled them out. Then some more people showed up in the Capitol inside the building brandishing weapons. Then they put the metal detectors back and the metal detectors have stayed ever since. So I don't know if the fence is the right response or, or the right form to protect the building and the grounds, but clearly something needs to happen. You need to have your lawmakers who can do their job in a safe and secure manner and environment. I think we all want the building protected. We talked before during some of the, the protests and rallies that it seemed to me counterintuitive to spray paint the Capitol building when what you were doing was really wanting to make sure the police force and police departments were more responsive. So um, this is going to be a tough one, but um, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Aurora Mayor Mike Hoffman is suing the city of Aurora over a campaign ordinance that prohibits municipal candidates from receiving campaign funding from other candidates. Mayor Kaufman says that while he agrees with the sentiment, he believes provisions were added specifically to silence him. John, uh, this uh, seemed to come out of left field uh, this time, uh, this week rather, but uh, it seems like a big deal. Is this going to be a, a, a big lawsuit, a big issue in Aurora as it moves down the line? This issue's been brewing kind of under the surface for a little while, and it is a big deal. And I love campaign finance law <laughs> as, as much as anyone. And I, this case is going to set some interesting precedents. So what Mayor Kaufman is objecting to is not necessarily the donation limits. He, he says he agrees with those, and those will likely be able to stand. He's objecting to the fact that the rules seem to prohibit him from supporting a candidate for counsel in a way that he wants to. Now, all these caveats I'm obviously adding here are important because the law here is so convoluted. Um, the real story here is that Mayor Kaufman wants to support Dustin's Zabonic, excuse me, for city council. Now, Dustin's a longtime uh, conservative activist here, he used to work on Kaufman's campaigns. And his election to the council would, would mean big things. And it's going to be a really fascinating election to watch because of that. Patty, Aurora is becoming a more and more influential city in Colorado. So what's happening there is making bigger news. Is this going to become a big headline across the state for a while? I think so. I mean, it's, a, it's certainly mo- fun to follow Aurora right now because you see Kaufman taking stands that you don't see Hancock, for example, taking. You had Kaufman going, uh, what was it, Homeless Mike over the Christmas holidays when he went out to really see what, he, what was going on with the homeless encampments. He came up with conclusions that didn't make people happy, but he went out, which was good. Here he's also taking a step forward and saying, I don't like this. Now, it might be that he just wants to be able to campaign for this one candidate, but I think it goes a little further. I think he just doesn't like being restricted as the mayor from doing what he thinks he should be able to. And I like it that it's fun covering Aurora politics right now. 
Ben, I don't know if uh, Mayor Kaufman or anyone else in Aurora would consider it fun. It's certainly fun for us to talk about it. Uh, what do you think of Mayor Kaufman's assertion and the ordinance that he's talking about? You know, I, I think part of the problem is um, it's not a good look if you're the mayor of the city and you sue your own city because city council passes an ordinance you don't like. Um, I think that that signals that you may have some issues in terms of your your relationship with your city council, and that's probably the more significant problem than this particular issue. Um, campaign finance has been a mess in Colorado for forever. Um, we often pass campaign finance reform, well-intentioned, but the consequence is just something that's been awful. Um, at the state level now, we have legislation where if you run for office, you can't control who spends money for or against you, and often you don't know where it comes from. That's not the result that was intended. So I don't know if, if, if Mayor Kaufman suing the city is the right approach, but clearly we need to reevaluate and look at campaign finance reform on a whole bunch of different levels. Natasha, the whole idea of campaign finance reform gets into the First Amendment pretty quickly. Is Aurora Mayor Coffin playing a game of chicken when it comes to the First Amendment? Well, I will say this. After years of reporting on politics in Colorado, usually you get some clarity as you um, become more expert at a topic. But when it comes to campaign finance reform, I think all of us know that the terms change so much over time that there's less and less clarity as things go on. What's interesting to me about Aurora is that anyone who follows politics had a good idea that that mayoral race and those city council races were going to be contentious and very interesting to watch. What I think this uh, loss suit signals is that it's going to be the next election that is going to be even more interesting. So I think anyone who's, who's paying attention should really look at this. We're seeing a trend, more money going into municipal races around the state, but Aurora will continue to be a hot topic for a long time. Time for our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, we're in the one-year anniversary of the pandemic hitting, the shutdown hitting. Today, we're supposed to go out at 8 o'clock and howl at, howl at the moon, according to the Hancock administration, which seemed to miss the fact that that howl was started by two Denverites. So that's going on. But I have to give it to our own reporter, who at my behest asked on March 23rd when the shutdown was coming down if pot stores and liquor stores were essential, because, of course, to us, they were. And that started a two-hour prohibition pandemic, the likes of which this city has never seen, a wild panic. The, one of the craziest two hours of In the Denver entire history. year. And it was my fault. <laughs> Penn, your disgrace of the week. Yeah, to all of you out there who've been critical of the models that talk about trends in terms of the COVID disease, take a deep breath. Models are a guide, they're a prediction, they're an estimate of what will happen. The fact that they underestimated how many people passed away and overestimated how many people would get sick, it was intended to give you some guidance in terms of how to change your behavior. And thankfully, many of us did change the behavior and we're heading and trending in the right direction now. Natasha, we go to you. At the risk of sounding like a curmudgeon, in my day, we used to walk our sled up the hill. So uh, shame on the people who decided to drive up Ruby Hill and tear up that turf. And they're even talking about the potential exposure of asbestos as a result of that. Um, next time, let's just take our sleds up the old-fashioned way. Here, here, Natasha, as a fan of Ruby Hill and also a fan, part of the exhilaration of sledding down the hill is because you had to work so hard walking up the hill. That's part of the thing. They, they, they cheated themselves. At, uh, anyway, I'm with you on that one. John, we go to you. 
Well, I wrote about this uh, earlier, but uh, my disgrace is the fact that the CSU Rams didn't make the NCAA tournament this year. Second time they've been left at the altar here in six years. It, it's pretty sad. And for that matter, CU deserved a better seating. They're going to have a tough game this weekend. Uh, here, here to that with both uh, uh, a CSU Ram and a CU Buff in my family. I, I root for both teams, and uh, they, they were both not uh, given what they deserve this year. Let's get to say something nice about somebody. Patty? Susan Green, our sometimes colleague at this table, and the rest of the Colorado News Collaborative, which yesterday won the big Gene Otto Friends of Freedom of Information Award. So congratulations to them and their new venture. Here, here. Penn? Dominic, sounds like you and Natasha both went to the same school of my dad that was uphill both ways. But <laughs> I want to give a shout out to Manitou Springs and Aspen for being voted two of the friendliest places in the country um, by, um, I think it was Expedia. Very nice. Uh, Natasha, we go to you for your, your curmudgeon. Say something nice. For all the intrepid reporters who have really carefully been watching Casa Benita's uh, silence during the pandemic, kudos to Westward for reporting this week um, that we have some signs of life. I I know there are plenty of Coloradans and people outside of the state, um, probably even more so, who are excited to know um, that there there are some, some indications that they're coming back. The, the flags for Sopapillas are up across the entire metro area. That's uh, good to see. John, we go to you. Well, uh, you can tell what I'll be doing this weekend because my uh, something nice is the fact that my North Carolina Tar Heels made the NCAA tournament and our rivals Duke didn't. And it's hard to tell which I like more, but sometimes I like it more when Duke loses than when Carolina wins. But that's what I'm going to be doing this weekend, watching college basketball as much as I can. The North Carolina Duke basketball rivalry is one of the finest in sports, so it's nice to see it uh, carried on here with our one of our favorite Southern gentlemen and John Frank. I want to say something nice about a, a member of our uh, KBDI PBS 12 extended uh, past family that we lost this week. Peter Chase was one of the early voices here at PBS 12 back when folks knew us as KBDI. If you were watching Channel 12 in the 80s or 90s, uh, anytime in between shows you heard any of our promotions or underwriting things like that, you heard Peter's famous voice. It was a wonderful radio voice that he shared with us. He even was on some of our pledge drives with Ted Critchels back then and really was part of the foundation of the station. We, we lost him at uh, a too young of age, 75 this week, but uh, as one of the people who is able to enjoy the legacy that he and so many others built, among, including uh, Penn's dad, who was part of our, our, one of our first boards, uh, I get to enjoy, along with all of our colleagues, the legacy they built. Uh, We are grateful for him and all the others that made this possible. He will certainly be missed. So on behalf of everybody here at PBS 12, KBDI Channel 12, whatever you wish to call us and from whatever era, uh, thank you very much for watching. I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Hope you have a great weekend and good night.